Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your reach. You should be reaching out for it. In order to find it, you have to seek it. You also seem to have to repent. That means think a different way than you were thinking before you repented. (laughs) That's what repentance means, to think a different way. And if you're really thinking a different way, you're probably going to go a different way. You're going to do things differently. Now, the kingdom is within you because the kingdom is spiritual. But if the Spirit of God is within you, the works that you do will be different than if another spirit was within you. And so we can tell what spirit is in you by what you do. The fruits of what you do. The fruits of the spirit that is within you is going to tell us, to some degree, what spirit you're following. What spirit is leading you on a daily basis. Now, of course, evil knows how this all works, and there are spirits that will counterfeit the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But the more you are filled with the Holy Spirit, the more you will be able to discern when somebody else is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because they will reveal themselves to you. Not only will they not perfectly imitate the fruits of the Holy Spirit. But they will literally reveal to you who they are. They will tell you who they are. And people are always trying to disguise who they are. You know, they wear certain clothes to make them look a certain way. Uh, you know, people put makeup on. Uh, you know, uh, today, you know, there are groups that, you know, tattoo themselves. Wear their hair a certain way to make them appear to be a certain way. You know, they everything from gang colors to, you know, pants that they wear around their waist and hip and and low and uh, and then of course you have all the you know the the makeup and the hairstyles that people have and all this stuff. You have the Amish with their brim of their hat being a certain size or their suspenders being a certain size to tell what group they are in. And this identifies people. And, you know, in some cultures, what you wear that we would think is absolutely crazy and stupid and foolish, in in those other cultures, they are accepted and respected and actually admired. And uh, you get a wide range of different things that people try to appear as in order to fit in to a particular group. And this is all imagination, of course, and this is why the Bible tells us not to trim the corners of our beard and and to braid our hair because these things were identifying you with certain groups. And what you really want to identify with is the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, everybody, well, I wouldn't say everybody, but most people believe in some sort of a God. 
I mean, you have the Muslims believing in a God, and of course there's a wide range of Muslims, you know, like uh, Aslan, who is, uh, uh, I've talked about, we have whole audios on some of the books that he's published, and he's a Muslim, and he's written about Jesus, and he is a, uh, a scholar uh, on uh, religious, uh, on religion in general, all sorts of religions. And he once said, as a Muslim, most Muslims are good people because they are very bad Muslims. And he's a Muslim. And, you know, this astounds me. I mean, he says the, the philosophies of Muhammad have no place in the 20th century. Yet he's a Muslim. <laughs> and you think like, hello, what are you talking about? <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, that's, that's okay with him because he's one of those bad Muslims who are probably a pretty good person. But uh, he doesn't really understand Christ. And of course, like I said, we've got hours and hours of uh, explaining exactly why I say that. He's, I mean, I'm not saying he's a bad guy. He just doesn't understand Christ. We have lots of people who are Christians or claim to be Christians and they preach Christ and they don't understand Christ. We have lots of people who read the Bible and study the Bible with great intensity, study Greek, study Hebrew, and they don't understand Christ. We have had at the time of Jesus Christ lots of Pharisees and Sadducees and probably Zealots who studied Hebrew, who spoke Hebrew, who studied the Scriptures with great fervor and intensity. Paul studied the Scriptures, but he didn't know Moses, nor did he know Christ. Eventually he figured it out, and that's what we can hope is all these other people who think they know eventually figure it out. And it's a it's an ongoing process because figuring out Christ has a lot to do with seeing yourself, seeing the truth about yourself. If you will not see the truth about yourself, you're not going to see the truth about Christ, nor you're going to see the truth about Moses. You're not going to see how they were in agreement. I mean, do you think it's just a coincidence that Jesus appears before the apostles with Moses and Elijah? Conversing, talking to one another. What, they were in agreement. Now, it's very clear that, that many of the Jews at the time of Jesus Christ were not in agreement with Jesus. But, of course, he says it's because you weren't in agreement with Moses. But they thought they were in agreement with Moses. And they spoke and read and studied Hebrew and the Scriptures. They read the Scriptures and did not know who Moses was. They knew they had an image of Moses in their own minds. But the image of Moses that they had in their own minds was incorrect. Based on Scripture, but incorrect. Because their interpretation of Scripture was incorrect. They didn't get it. They didn't understand the allegory of the Old Testament. And so, you know, I actually have had it up for um, for a long time now, probably years. Uh, a document that was written at the time of Jesus Christ by a fellow by the name of Philos. Uh, Philo of Alexandria, uh, he actually, go, he's known by several different names. 
And uh, he uh, was uh, actually uh, elected by Jews to represent uh, the Jews in Alexandria to the government of uh, Rome, to Caligula specifically. And uh, he went there to make complaints about uh, the way in which Greeks were treating Jews. They were actually killing them. There were people dying. And so, anyway, he he wrote a number of things. All of them haven't survived, but uh, different books of some of his different writings. Well, one of the things he wrote was The Allegories of the Sacred Laws by Philos Judeus which is the other name he goes by. So, But anyway, we, we've had that up for some time. And we have that text up on at Preparing You. And you can read that. You can also read about allegories in general. We have a separate uh, page just on allegories, which talks about Galatians 4.24, which says, We see uh, this uh, reference to allegory in that verse. Which reads, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. So he talks about these, these things in, uh, and you, and you can read the article. It goes on that, uh, you know, an allegory is basically a story, or a poem, or even a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Typically a moral or political one. Now we know Jesus was always talking about uh, things in, in the form of parables. Well, parables are a sort of allegory. But how many of the stories in the Old Testament are allegories? Well, Hebrew language lends itself to allegory. Because the language itself, almost every single word that represents a a uh, a concept or a, a spiritual concept, also represents a physical object. And so, if you translate all the physical objects, you know all the words as physical objects, you're going to get. And don't realize that these are allegories. And this is the way you remember things, is they put things in a story. I mean, it's kind of like flashcards. That you hold up a flashcard with an A on it. And on the back of the flashcard is a picture of an apple. And then you show the flashcard to the kid and he says, it's an A. And you turn it around and he says, A, the word apple begins with an A. And then you show him the A again. And he remembers the A because of the apple. Because the apple is a thing. But the A is an abstract idea. I mean, it's a thing too. I mean, it's a drawing. But it's representing a, a an abstract concept of A. <laughs> well, in Hebrew, that A, which would be an Eleph, actually has a meaning of its own. When you hold up a picture of an elef, you see a yod and a vav and a yod. That's the way you draw it. And it's representing, yod is the divine spark. When you have a yod one way and a yod another way and a vav in between, 
That is like the allegory of the painting that we see of Adam reaching out with his finger towards God reaching out with his finger and God and Adam touching and Adam being alive. You know, in the famous uh, painting that we see, the mural amongst everybody has seen it somewhere or another, of Adam reaching up and God reaching down and touching. That's the elf. And the painting is an allegory. It's not supposed to be a historical photograph. It's an allegory. And so is the letter Aleph an allegory. It's representing abstract ideas. But it's also the letter A or Aleph in the Hebrew language. And all the letters are that way. They think in allegories. And there's a, there's a character in, in the movies and I haven't seen the movie yet but I saw some sort of preview about it where this one fellow, uh, you know, it's kind of a comedy, science fiction, drama. And the one fellow does not understand metaphors or allegories. Everything to him is literal. And of course they have funny, humorous conversations because he's taking everything that is said absolutely literal. And they can't get him to get it. You know, like the old Abbott Costello routine of water under the bridge. What bridge, you know? That's uh, a figure of speech. Well, that figure of speech is like this idea of allegory and metaphor. And that is absolutely pervasive throughout the Old Testament. And certainly is in the New Testament with all the parables. The stories. They're trying to tell you something. Now, there's a, there's a reason why you put things in allegory and story form and and represent it with symbols, especially when dealing with spiritual ideas, is so that the people who will not accept the spiritual ideas will accept the allegory. And they'll repeat the allegory. They will repeat the story. You know, how many, how many times have they repeated the story of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden? Were they really walking around naked all the time in the woods and eating nothing but fruit day in, day out? Uh, what was what was really going on there? Well, we really don't know. We know that there is truth in the story, but the story may not be exactly meant to be read as if they were actually naked walking around. And we've explained that. We show how the word naked actually means without authority, without the power of authority, of one over another. Now, they had dominion, very clearly. They had dominion over the fish and the and the animals and all this, but they didn't have dominion over other people. And, of course, we're led to believe that there were no other people. There was no other Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were molded from the Adama, and God breathed into them His Spirit. But, of course, Jesus breathed into the apostles his spirit. And then, of course, we know the spirit descended upon them at Pentecost when they were in the upper room along with the 120 other people. And they all came out and were doing miracles. But Jesus had already breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So, what was happening at Pentecost? Were they receiving more Holy Spirit? Well, yes, of course, that's actually what was taking place. And now, was that story an allegory? Well, they said, like, tongues of fire. Well, the tongues of fire are part of an allegory. Because it, 
they're even saying it was like tongues of fire. You know, like the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus appeared as a dove. Well, the it may not have looked exactly like a dove, but what they saw reminded them of a dove fluttering its wings, just like you would see a candle burning and the light fluttered, flickered, as the candle flickered about. So, the, in order to describe these things, we use symbols, words that we already have to describe these things that we have not ever seen before. And so, anyway, the whole Bible is that way. It's always pointing to this unseen spiritual principles and reality with allegories, metaphors, and symbols. Unfortunately, most people today... And probably throughout history, many people have done this, where they unmoor the symbol from its true meaning and focus on the symbol itself. They see the symbol itself. Oh, it's this specific rote way. You know, we have to pile up stones. We can't hit them with a chisel. And, and we put these stones all in a big pile and we kill a sheep and we set the sheep on fire. And they don't understand the allegory of that. They don't understand the message of sacrifice and the the meaning of stones, an altar of stones rather than an altar of clay. They they just don't get that. And even though you can explain it and show them in the Bible, show them how the letters all mean different things and that a gathering of stone is a council of men and they say, oh, okay, well, maybe that's so and everything. They still keep drifting back to interpreting the allegory in a pharisaical sort of way. And it creates nothing but confusion. And the reason they drift back to that is because they are really idolaters. They don't believe in the Spirit, the Word of God. Oh, they say they do. But they are actually idolaters. Because they believe in the image of God the image of the gospel, the image of the Old Testament that they create by forever studying and never coming to a knowledge of the Holy Spirit itself. Now, we all hear the whispers of the Holy Spirit. Everybody hears that to some degree. I mean, the Holy Spirit is around us all the time. It's trying to witness to us. But our pride and our vanity get in the way. And this is why I say you the journey to God involves a journey to the inner parts of your own being. You have to see yourself as you really are. You have to see your pride. You have to see your arrogance. You have to see your mistakes. You have to see the trauma of your life. You have to see how it was not everybody else making you a victim as you made yourself a victim. Because you did not walk in the ways of God. You didn't walk in forgiveness. You didn't walk in the ways of the Holy Spirit. You walked in judgment of others. You walked in in a desire for personal satisfaction. Personal vanity. And everybody has. We've all sinned. But there comes a time to put away the things of sin. I mean, when we're a child, we are selfish, we cry, we want this, we want that. I mean, we hear about 
Everybody, my mother says I was such a good baby. I remember I wasn't that good a baby. <laughs> my mother has a distorted view of the past sometimes. But she wants to think well of her children. But, uh, and, and we may not have been bad as some children are. But the fact is, is we've all made mistakes. We've all been selfish. We were born to selfishness. But we have to see that. And walk in another way, an unselfish way, a way of sacrifice, the way of Christ. Christ came to sacrifice. People say, oh, the sacrifice has been done away with. Why? What are you talking about? That you're misapplying. What he's talking about is this phony, artificial, idolatrous sacrifice that was going on in the temple amongst the Pharisees and others at the time of Jesus Christ. That was done away with. The principles of the sacrifice, of charity, of free will offerings. You know, I I point this out and people don't realize the significance of it. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it mention the word charity. So there was no charity before that. Everywhere you see Jesus talking about love almost, almost everywhere, is the same word that we translate into charity when Paul's saying it. Why is it love when Jesus says it and charity when Paul says it? We're we're being manipulated by a spirit that was in the hearts and minds of translators. I'm not saying they're all wicked, but they're affected by that spirit. And everybody who reads the Bible, which has thousands of words in it, that are translated hundreds of different ways. I mean, some words have have a dozen or more different words that they're translated into. And some of them, some of those words are almost the exact opposite of the others. You know, I mean, the the same Hebrew word can be translated a dozen different ways. Same Greek word is translated a dozen different ways. And sometimes, you know, four or five or even six different Greek words are translated into the same single English word. If you have that kind of power when you're translating a document, you can make the Bible mean anything you want. Then, if you go and you study the Bible, and you pick and choose when you're going to see something as an allegory, when you're going to see it as a metaphor, when you're going to see it as specific rote instructions you're going to get a distorted view of the Bible. The only way you can understand the Bible, the only way, is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to be dwelling in you. And what draws that Holy Spirit to you and you to that Holy Spirit? Corbin. Sacrifice. Sacrifice not only of stuff that you have that may make you comfortable, but sacrifice of your own personal pride and arrogance. Willing to be humble before others and before God. So that you can see what only God can show you. I can't show it to you. I can talk about how you misinterpret things. I can show you things you missed. But only God can show you the truth. And that's what we're going to try to lead you near the still waters of truth when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. 
back to Keys of the Kingdom. Uh, one one quote that uh, came across today, and I just uh, copied it because it reminded me of, uh, uh, of something. And it, w- it will play into some of our explanations. Uh, uh, there, there was a document kind of floating around in the network that somebody put together, and it's, it's, it's really a travesty uh, as far as documented study. And one of the reasons why is because they don't understand metaphor. And they don't understand uh, the allegories of the Bible. And so they're blind. And, and we've spent long hours, long hours, we lavish time on this individual to try to get them to understand these things. And they have seen, or at least claim they have seen many things, but they don't really see with the eyes of the Holy Spirit or they would see more clearly, but they don't. And they actually fluctuate back and forth a bit on what they see and what they don't see because they don't really see it. And I'm reminded of a story of a fellow that was from another country that came here and and he was just shocked by the information he was receiving. But he didn't just receive information. He actually received the presence because he didn't come alone. He came with more than one person. And so one person was receiving the information and the and the spirit that goes along with that information. And he was feeling the presence of the spirit but he was, it it was making him actually hide. He actually like shut all the shades and and blinds and sat in the dark in the middle of the day because that was actually it was manifesting in a, in in a physical way his willingness or his unwillingness to receive the light of understanding. It wasn't that he was terribly religious and and we were overthrowing all of his religious doctrines and everything it was just that there was light coming in and he was seeing things that he had never really wanted to see before he was a little bit of a shallow individual he was a nice guy and everything but he eventually i had to go and talk with him and relieve him of this burden of uh, fearing the this light and understanding and and he came back a year or so later all the way back here to this country and saw us and stayed with us longer until his visa almost ran out. And uh, actually, I think it did kind of run out a little bit. But uh, uh, he's now immigrated to another country. But uh, one of the things he said in his second visit was that, because we talk about the same thing again. He says, I knew that everything you said was important before when I was here. And it was overwhelming but I knew it was important and I knew it was true. He said, but I, when I got home, around all the other people that he knew, he could not physically remember. He's a very smart guy. He could not physically remember what it was that I said. The things that I said. Because the things that I said was not really what was moving him. It was the spirit by which they were said. Well, the certain minds, certain people want to memorize and study. See, intellect is is a curse. It's a blessing, but it's a curse. Because they want to put everything down. You know, these are the ones that are forever studying and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Because the truth is not an intellectual tree of knowledge. It's not the tree of knowledge. The truth is not the tree of knowledge. The truth is the spirit, the tree of life. 
That's the truth. And people are trying to obtain the truth by eating of the tree of knowledge, by studying and figuring it out. And that's why, you know, when they mistranslate the Bible and, and talk about uh, study to show thyself approved, and the word there that they translate study never is translated study anywhere else in the Bible. Just there. Only there. It actually means be diligent to show thyself approved. Be diligent in what? Studying? Thinking? No, in doing. In being. And so anyway, this this idea of, of memorizing the truth or studying the truth out right away puts you into the tree of knowledge. Puts you into idolatry. Puts you into witchcraft. Because you're going to try to alter the form, adjust to the form, without accepting the Holy Spirit. And you cannot do that. And you will substitute emotion for the Holy Spirit. Uh, you will substitute the way in which you act, you know, speaking softly and patiently and all this stuff. And I'm not saying you're totally devoid of the Holy Spirit. If you were totally devoid of the Holy Spirit, you'd probably just drop dead. But you're not walking with the Holy Spirit. It's trying to walk with you, but you're not walking with it. Because you're not willing to see the truth about yourself. You want to conjure up God in your imagination and worship that God of your imagination. You may not have built a stone idol or a wooden idol, but you have created an imaginary idol. And you will not receive the powers of the Holy Spirit in both discerning and and seeing and in doing. So anyway, the quote that I came across actually is in First Kings uh, chapter twelve, verse sixteen. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying. What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. Now before this, this is when they were saying we made a mistake by wanting a king, wanting a ruler. Wanting a president, wanting a prime minister, whatever you want to call him, this ruler that can exercise authority and force the contributions of the people. Before that, when they came and they asked him to release them, and let's go back to the way it was before we rejected God and elected a king, president, prime minister, etc. See, everybody wants out of the system now, but they need to read this and understand what was going on. You can't just get out of the system. You can, but you lose all inheritance, all rights. Yeah, you lose them. And you lose the protection of them. Because you're not doing it righteously. There's only one way to do this righteously. And that's doing it through Christ. What Christ was actually telling you to do. But people don't know what Christ was actually telling you to do. Cause, but he he's very clear about it. He, I mean, there's several places where he gives you specific instructions to do this and not do that. But... Most churches, you never hear those instructions. It's just amazing. They just like gloss over it. Their eyes just like drift over it. They just don't even see it. 
Or if they do mention it, they just mention it in passing and never really explain what they're talking about. And they continue doing what the Pharisees did and the Sadducees did. And, you know, I mean, you, you've got some of the wealthiest preachers in, in America almost never mention the Bible or quote from the Bible. And yet they're some of the wealthiest preachers and, and they don't even quote Jesus. Very seldom do you ever even hear them. You often hear them misquote Jesus. You know, they'll say something that Jesus supposedly said, but it's paraphrased, slightly different. But anyway, in this area of 1 Kings, they had previously, when they asked for, let's return to the way it was before we rejected God and elected the ruler who could exercise authority one over the other, they were they appealed to him and he the king at that time, and he told them to go back to their cities. And then, when they came back, he had decided, after listening to his cronies, that he was going to whip them with scorpions. And, you know, my, uh, you know, my father whipped you with whips, but I will whip you with scorpions, which uh, is not really a good campaign uh, uh, speech. But anyway, that's that's their interpretation. Is basically he was saying that I'm going to actually put more stringent controls on you. Then they decided not to go back to their cities, but to go back to their tents. And if you go all the way back to the the time of uh, Samuel, Samuel 8, when they were rejecting God and asking the voice of the people wanted to elect a king and they wanted Samuel to swear him in uh, and then he would exercise authority, uh, they were told to go back to their tents and uh, then when they were done and they got their king appointed, they went to their cities. So why is why are we seeing go back to tents, go back to cities? Because at that time, they weren't really living in tents. They They had towns everywhere. They had villages. They had houses and dwellings. I mean, they had tents, but they didn't all live in tents. They weren't migrating around in tents all the time, but they say go back to their tents. It's because the word tents, which is the same word that we see as tabernacles, uh, doesn't just mean, you know, a canvas structure or goat hair structure that you you sleep in. You know, like a four-wall tent or even a yurt. It means go back to your own house and family. These are metaphors. And when they left the kingdom, they didn't go back to the civil structure. They went back to their tents. What What is that? that? Well, originally, see, in Israel, for 400 years, there were no kings because every man was king of his own tent, his own family, his own altar of clay. And uh, if they did form an altar of clay with more than one family, they were not, they were not, they were just gathered together in free assemblies. An altar of clay is a free assembly of families. There's no part of their family's rights that are jeopardized by coming together in an altar of clay. You just come together freely and you leave freely. You leave with all your rights intact. You haven't waived a right to anything other than what you have offered up and given up to others. 
you know, if you give something to somebody because he needs help, then you've given up that thing, but you haven't given up your right to decide. All your rights are still intact. You are literally the state. All the power that would be vested into the state by social contract is still in you. And this is, of course, what Moses was teaching the people, how to come together and be a nation without the compromise of your personal rights. Each family was independent. It was an independent tent, family unit. This is my tent. You come into my tent, you had to ask permission. Because I made this tent, and this is my wife, this is my children, and you can't... There's a boundary here, and that's my tent. That's what the tent represents. And so this whole idea of the tabernacles of the congregation, the tabernacle of the congregation... That's the tense. And you, you can go into Hebrew literature and you'll see reference to that fact where they talk about the tents of the congregation as the actual homes of the congregation, the actual family units of the congregation. That's their tents. I mean, even, even go back to Isaac and, uh, you know, his wife coming from afar. And they talk about going into whose tent? I say they go into his mother's tent. He takes her into his mother's tent. What, what are they talking about there? The uh, These are all symbols. And, and once you start seeing the symbols of the letters of Hebrew and the symbols that each word together, where you put several symbols together and you form a word, which is another concept, and the order of the letters all makes a difference, you begin to see. But you still, you can go study that and memorize that and you will not understand the truth because the truth is spiritual. It's not physical. It's manifested in a physical way. But it's spiritual. And if you do not want to see the truth about yourself, you want to cloak the truth about yourself and all the stuff you learn and memorize and study, then you're not going to see the truth. You just You're going to forever study and never come to a knowledge of the truth. So anyway, a lot of questions have been risen uh, or, or raised up, uh, and uh, the, I'm going to occasionally read from a document. I'm not going to go through. I, I've gone through it. Other people have read it, uh, and it's actually an attack on the idea that the early church was not organized like the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And of course, we've written a whole book, Thy Kingdom Come, which this is makes it very clear. I mean, I could put tons of stuff in the book, but I kept it down to 144 pages. Uh, but I gave you examples within the book of how these tens, hundreds, and thousands have existed all the way back to the time of Nimrod. I mean, the writings of Nimrod, he was organizing the people in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. And that was around long before Nimrod. It was a, it's, it's been around since the most ancient of days. But there's a difference between Nimrod's tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and those of Abraham and Moses. Saul's tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands were more like Nimrod's. And it was because the difference is one is organized by top-down directives 
you know, this will be the leader of tens, this will be the leader of fifties, this will be the leader of a hundreds, so saith the king. And the other one is based on people self-organizing themselves in free assemblies. Where ten people get together and say, this will be our leader. He's not a ruler. He's just a leader. And what is he leading? He's leading us together with the fifties, hundreds, and thousands. He's tying us together so that we're an actual nation, kingdom, whatever you want to call it. God is the king, but he, his job is to help link us together, connect us together. Because you can't connect yourself together with a thousand people. You can't get to know them all. You just don't have the time. You gotta go till the fields. You gotta take care of your wife, your kids. You gotta make dinner. Whatever. You can't get to know a thousand people. So if, unless you network, that ain't gonna happen. And the network of the kingdom of God is a voluntary one. Free will one. Now what brings us close together? Sacrifice. Loving one another. We give up so that others will be cared for in time of true need. And this is what the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, and we gave examples of the two times we could give. Actually, not too long ago, I came across the fact that in Peru, the, the, the Incas were organized in the same pattern of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, according to historians. Well, how did they have that same model way over here? Because it's been around. It's always been around. And we see it in Germany. We see it in Italy. We see it in throughout the first century church, especially the churches that were overrun during the Inquisitions. When the beast rose up a thousand years after the fall of Jerusalem, the beast rose back up again, unchained, and came along like King Stephen, King Dabullion, uh William the Conqueror, and they murdered and killed all the true Christians in the name of Christ they did it so that they could create kingdoms again which were a rejection of God. You know, Samuel says that when you chose a king that's a rejection of God that I should not rule over you. And we've been doing that for a thousand years now. So we've had another thousand years where we've been electing men to rule over our neighbor, to take from our neighbor, to bite out of our neighbor so that we can have benefits at their expense. Some people now don't like the fact that they can be bit by government, taxed by government, taken away from by government to provide welfare for lazy, slothful people who really don't need any help, but they need a kick in the pants. And they hate that. And so they want out of the system. Well, you can't get out of the system. You're a surety for debt. You're in bondage. You were told that you would become merchandise. Uh, and we have like, what was it? One heaven. I think I just saw something on those guys again. I think they're out of Australia or New Zealand or someplace. And they're talking about, well, you just, you know, rebut the presumption and all this kind of stuff. No. No. It doesn't work that way. You can't just save yourself by denying history. You can't save yourself by reading the Bible and thinking you have a, a, an interpretation of the Bible. You know, you have to repent. You have to think a different way. You have to think like Christ thinks. What did Christ come to do? He came that you might be saved, but he came to sacrifice himself. If you're coming in the name of Christ, you come together to sacrifice yourself so that others will be free. You have to care about others' freedom as much as your own. If you're just out there getting yourself out of the system... And you don't really care about anybody else. Well, they can run, make a run for it too, like I am. 
you're not coming in the name of Christ and you probably will not be free because you're slothful in the ways of God, the ways of Christ, which are the ways of sacrifice. The animal sacrifice that was never intended was done away with, but sacrifice is not done away with because charity is not done away with. Love is sacrifice. Love is not done away with. So how do you love your neighbor? Oh, well, somebody just said, you know, I carry tools around in my car. And if I come across somebody who's broke down, uh, you know, I help them. I don't have any network about the people who I don't come across. I just help the people I accidentally stumble upon. Somebody else was saying, it says, well, the charity should be taken care of by the elders, that they should meet and decide what to do with the widows and orphans and needy of society. Well, they should meet and decide what they do. But how do they make sure that they do it? And we can show you early church writings, first, second century. To show how they did it. They got together and those that had shared with those that didn't have enough. And those who didn't come to the meeting. Those who we didn't stumble across in the middle of the highway. <laughs> we sent diaconuses, deacons, out. To deliver what they would need. And to keep track. And to come back and to report us. To make sure that they got what they needed. And this is not just for the poor. God is not in love with the poor. The poor you'll have with you always. Much of the people that are poor. Are poor because they're poor in spirit. They're selfish. They're self-indulgent. They're lazy. They're slothful. They should be under tribute. You're not supposed to be feeding them. They're under tribute. If you feed them and the government feeds them, all you are is making them more slothful than they were to begin with. Giving to the poor is giving to the poor who's seeking the kingdom. Not giving to every poor person who's out there, you know, on welfare or food stamps and squandered their food stamps so that now they're without food and now you have to go feed them. And then you think you've done good. You know, the, the wino's out of booze. You gotta go buy him more booze, right? No. Don't, this is gonna be silly. Helping the poor means sometimes kicking them in the rear end. Pointing out their failings. As many as I love, I also rebuke. You've drank away your welfare check and now you're hungry and you want me to feed you. You want me to start a food kitchen so that people that are making $40,000 a year can come. You know, like when the fire down in weed. There were people in the line at the food kitchen who were just tourists. They didn't lose their house. They came down to see what was going on and they saw a free food kitchen and they came in and wanted to get fed. We had people come to the, the festival, the Burning Bush Festival. And I said, well, who are you? And uh, started asking, trying to get to know everybody who came. Oh, they just saw the signs and they came in for the free food. Had nothing to do with this. They just come in for the free meal. We should have run them out of there uh, their, on a rail. <laughs> we didn't. We were hospitable. But uh, I did say a few things to them. But they don't care. And, of course, you lavish your time on people who say they want to understand the kingdom, but then they can't understand even the basics of the kingdom. Tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, it's just common sense. You know, I pointed out, I said that Moses told them that they had to have this, like, spoon hilt on their swords, 
on the handle of their sword so that they could dig a latrine so that everybody would, when they went to the latrine, they would bury it. Wouldn't be just sitting out. I mean, you got a thousand people walking along on the ground. You don't want people stepping in other people's feces. So they had to bury it. And this was important for the health of the people. When Jesus says, uh, if you don't have a sword, go and buy it, even if you have to sell your coat. And they said, "We, you know, I've got two. And he says, that's, that's good enough. He failed to check with that guy. By the way, do you have a hilt on the, your handle there so you can dig your latrine? Jesus didn't mention that. So I guess now it's okay to drop your feces anywhere you don't have to bury it. Because Jesus didn't mention that. No, that's silly. And this is the silliness of most of the people studying the gospel. They don't, they don't have any common sense. But we're going to talk about that more when we return to the keys of the kingdom. Be right back. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Anyway, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're we're looking at some of the things in the interpretation of the Bible that some people just cannot grasp. And the fact is, is that the Old Testament and the New Testament were really trying to deliver the same message God has been trying to deliver to us since the days of Enoch and before. Even in the days of Adam and Eve, God was trying to get us to eat of the tree of life, this Holy Spirit, instead of the tree of knowledge, which is... The tree of knowledge has its place, but it's not the source of our guidance on a day-to-day basis. Some people are very smart, very intellectual, 
and they have a huge tree of knowledge. And they are tempted more because it's so big, they are tempted to eat of that tree of knowledge. That information, that tree of information, that dendritic tree in your brain. But to eat of the tree of life is to eat of the Holy Spirit. To follow the Holy Spirit, you have to shut down your brain for a second and and listen to the Holy Spirit. But when you do that, you have to see yourself as you really are. You have to be still and know. Because see, what happens is that when you stray from God, then your brain has to become very active. Because you have to fill that void that's in you now. That is the uh, uh, the absence of the tree of life. That creates a void in yourself. And you have to fill it with the tree of knowledge. And so you're out there trying to get more and more knowledge. And and you'll see it, in, it manifest itself in, in many different ways. Some people just chatterbox. Have to go on and on and on and on. But when you want to get them to the fact that their family is a mess and their children are all estranged and won't even talk to them anymore. They've had one, two, three husbands maybe. It's always the other guy's fault. Uh, and, and I don't want to pick on just women. Men do the same thing. You know, men get very intellectual and I have a degree in this and a degree in that and I've studied this for years and I know so much and, and all this kind of stuff. But they don't have the Holy Spirit within them. They have created and conjured up a vision of the Holy Spirit and what they think the Holy Spirit is. And it may involve emotion. It may involve, uh, you know, we, ha- we are creatures of habit so that we can put on our prayer face and our holier-than-thou face and that we are this, that, and the other thing. And we're not really. This is all in our imagination. But we are idolaters. We're creating God in our own I- image or in our own imagination. And then we worship what we've created in our imagination. And you, and that can take you almost anywhere, which is why we have 40,000 denominations in Christianity. Because it does take you almost anywhere. But God is the same. So why aren't all Christians the same? Because they're not really following God. They're following an image of God that they've created in their own mind. If everybody who claimed to be Christian was actually Christian, the state of the nation would be different. The whole history of mankind would have been altered. Just with the ones that say they are Christian. But there are actually many people who do not say they are Christian are probably closer to Christ than many of the people who say they are Christian. And Jesus will say, get you from me. I know you're not. They've been far from him all along. Yet they're professing his name out of their mouth, but not in their ways. And their lives often show it. Although there are some that can make it look pretty much like they're really good guys. So how do you know the difference? Well, only by the Holy Spirit. So anyway, this... uh this document that was floating around, it said somewhere here, actually the heads of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands were judges selected from each tribe to help deal with the strife between the children of Israel. Well, yes, in Deuteronomy 1, uh, 15 and 17, and uh, 
and they did organize into the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands for that purpose. But the reality was they were already somewhat organized by Joshua. We don't know exactly how that was, but but we know that that idea of organizing to the tens, fifties, and hundreds, and thousands did not originate with Jethro. It had been around for a long time. But what Moses was doing was Moses was sitting in this high court listening to all these different disputes. It was taking up all kinds of times. And so he talks, Jethro talks about, why don't you do it with the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands? That they pick men to judge. Now, today we have judges who sit and judge right and wrong, good and evil. And they sit in black robes up in courtrooms. And, you know, in England they have black robes and wigs on their heads. And they are judges deciding good and evil amongst the people who has sinned and who has not sinned. And they literally are gods, ruling judges. I mean, the word Elohim and the word Theos in the Greek, both translated God or gods, was used in those cultures, Hebrew culture and the Roman culture and the Greek culture, to identify magistrates in courts of law. They were called gods. And the appointer of gods, Apotheos, appointed the judges throughout the empire, which was the emperor. And we go, we've gone through all that, and we have articles on that, and show you. I mean, I didn't make this up that they were magistrates and judges, that gods were magistrates and judges. That's in the Strong's Concordance. It's in theirs. You can look it up. I'm, it's, 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 it's there. It's hard to sometimes fit into your brain because you think having other gods is having, you know, worshiping Allah instead of Yahweh. No, it's having ruling judges who decide good and evil with their own personal trees of knowledge. So anyway, what they were doing is picking these judges, but the difference again is in how they did it. Like I said, Nimrod's had tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. We know this from ancient, ancient writings that have survived down through the ages, which we quote on the website. And maybe we'll, I'll read you that quote and tell you where you got it. I mean, you, you can probably Google it and find it. But this uh, difference is in how these judges are picked by the consent of the individual. And in in our modern jury system, I shouldn't say modern, but at least in the last 200 years, the jury system, early in America, the jury decided fact and law. It still says that in over half of the constitutions, state constitutions of the United States. Supreme Court has said it over and over again that a jury has a right to decide fact and law. We have whole articles and, and a series of letters between me and the government uh you know, agents of the government and judges and stuff like that, where I take people through step by step. This was just, I thought it was just phenomenal because uh, I was led to do this and I had these letters going back and forth. And uh, it, I uncovered something in that process and that's all revealed on our website. I mean, you could go there and study and study and study forever, but if you really want to know the kingdom, you have to start walking a different way. You have to start walking like Christ who came to sacrifice. And he, uh, right away, Christ is organizing a group of 12. Self-organizing a group of 12. And right away, we see that 12 
in an upper room with 120, which had to have been a pretty good size upper room. 120, 12, what's going on here? We're seeing a pattern developing here. Because the 10s, 50s, 100s, and 1000s, we could make it the 12s. Uh, what's 5 times 12? <laughs> 60s. Uh, you know, and up to 144,000. Uh, the number is not as specific as the concept of networking. And they were networking day one, Pentecost. They were networking. Jesus was creating a little flock that was going to go out and minister to others right away. You very clearly see that. But people just kind of like, oh, well, you know, they just, uh, they just don't even see it. The chances are of those Hebrews that held up those two swords and said, there, here's two. There was a hilt on the bottom of those swords uh, on the hilt. Uh, there's a spoon there for digging on the tree. Because weren't they Israeli swords? Uh, Israelite swords? I don't know. It doesn't go into it. But they were still keeping their latrines. And, and because that makes sense. And they were still keeping the food laws. Because a lot of the food laws made health, good health sense. And may still make good health sense today. But understanding why these rules were made. Why there was a festival. I know all kinds of people that are keeping tabernacles. But they are not keeping tabernacles. Because they don't have the network of charity. That tabernacles was specifically supposed to provide. And to strengthen. The Levites had a job. To serve. And we'll, we'll get into that. We may not get into it right here. But this is going to be a long series. Because we're going to take you right through. And show you how the kingdom worked. It, show you what the early church was doing. Show you what early Israel was doing. The Christians thrived. They didn't just survive. They thrived. During the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And you're back in Rome again. You need to do what they were doing. And they were organizing, self-organizing themselves, sacrificing daily. We call it charity, sacrifice, sacrificing daily. And there the apostles were. The apostles were in the temple. The 120 were in the temple, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. That says telling you. What bread? The bread that came to them by way of sacrifice. Somebody actually was saying, oh, the sacrifice was only, you know, livestock, etc., etc. It wasn't money. And it tells you right there in the Bible that, you know, when you go to tithe at the festival and it's a long ways off, that you turn it into money. Because <laughs> it's easier to transport. But anybody who would say that, interpret. And I said, well, what, what happened if you make $100,000? You don't raise any sheep. You're employed by somebody. You know, maybe you're a teacher, maybe whatever. And uh, you have a skill. And you're employed by an employer and he just pays you. And that's how you make your living. You don't raise sheep. You don't raise crops. You don't raise seeds. So you don't have to tithe. And they, yeah, you don't have to tithe evidently because it's not sheep. It's only if you have sheep. Boy, you have to be totally delusional to think that. Is the case. I mean you have to be totally self-deceived. 
you, you know, in your family, you probably don't want to tithe, so you've made this up and accepted this as truth. Because it says in the Bible that it's uh, the, you know, the produce of the ground. You're the ground, for gosh sakes. It, you don't just produce sheep. You produce whatever you produce. You're the dirt. That produced that $100,000 in wages. And you should be tithing that. Now, how you tithe that, that's between you and God. But if you're not tithing at all, I don't believe that the Holy Spirit is in you. You say, well, I help out the poor. I saw an old lady on the street corner the other day and I helped her across the street. See, that, and that actually counts as part of your tithe. But, spiritually speaking, it counts as part of your tithe. But tithe isn't 10%. And we'll get into that. I mean, the same word for tithe is the same word for tens. Uh, there's... The same word that's translated tens or tenth is also translated tithe in some places. Now, most of the place where you see the word tithe or tithing is translated, it's the same word, but they add one letter. It's a four letter word instead of a three letter word. And today, tithe has become a four letter word in many churches. Oh, we don't tithe anymore. Uh, no, same principle applies. It's just sacrifice. It's just charity. That's all a tithe is. The reason they call it a tithe is because it was the... What's the letter they add to the word ten to produce the word tithing or tithe? Anybody guess? It's the letter mem. What is the letter mem? I've said this a hundred times, a thousand times. Letter mem is a letter that that suggests flow. Like a river, like a fountain. Tithing is what flows from ten. It's not a tenth, tenth percent. It's what flows from ten. That's why the mem comes first. It's the flow coming from ten. That's why they call it a tithing. It's not because it's ten percent. Because it says right in the Bible, you tithe to them according to their service. Right there. And now, so that ten, that gathering together in tens, we see it in early England, we see it in France, we see it in, we see it all over. The Romans did it. The Etruscans did it. They gathered in these small groups. Sometimes the groups were twelve. Sometimes they were ten. But the same pattern of a small group getting together and binding themselves together with faith, hope, and charity whether they're Etruscans or Incas or whatever, has always been there throughout the history of mankind. And it was there in the early church. And we show that in the Christian communities that were eventually overrun by the the so-called Christian community that had a single leader. And he appointed who would be over you from the top down. Like Nimrod. Like Saul. Like uh, Pharaoh eventually did. You have a choice of either organizing yourselves into the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start walking in the ways and according to the name of Christ or the name of Messiah or the name of Yeshua, which is all the same name because it's the same character, which is walking in sacrifice, in charity, in love, in hope that others will love you but you don't force them. No entitlements. No men who can exercise authority. Leaders galore. 
but no men who can exercise authority one over the other. That's that's what they were doing. And back to the judges that they were picking. Yeah, they picked judges. Back to the jury. The decided fact in law. How do you decide who the jury is? Through a process of ordire. This guy, you call all the people from your local community to come in to be jurors. And you get to pick one and he gets to pick one. And you get to pick one and he gets to pick one. And if you don't like one that he picks or he doesn't like one that you pick, he can say, no, I don't want that guy on my jury. And eventually you get so that after you pick your jury, you consent to whatever that jury decides. And this is the same way. You either had binding arbitration where you agreed that this guy or these guys could decide who was right and who was wrong. You agreed before the trial. And through that process of, of Vordire, of picking which elder, because if you've already in a congregation, they may already, you may already, in the dispute is within that congregation, you already have your jury. It's the elders, your fellow elders. And now you're going to confess before them what you did, and he's going to confess before them what he did, and they're going to decide whether or not one of you is not being fair. And they're going to rule accordingly. And if you don't abide by their ruling, they may not accept you in their tithing, in their tens anymore. Because they will say, well, you're not following the law. And we all know it. Because openly in the conversation at the city gates, we decided that you are not being fair. And everybody will know it. Now, maybe it's an important matter. Maybe it's a minor matter. Maybe they let you stay in the tithing. But they know where your heart is at. Now, what happens if it's two different congregations? Well, then you'll pick elders from both. And you agree on who you pick. And if you won't do that, then you're an outlaw. You're not interested in that. And they may stone you. They won't hit you with rocks. They will tell the Levite minister... And they will, they all know themselves that you're being a selfish little pig. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're not a widow indeed. You're, you're, you're running around with all kinds of different men. You, you haven't been loyal to your husband. You haven't been loyal to your children. You didn't raise him. You didn't take care of them the way you should have. And we're not going to help you out when you are poor. And we're not going to do it because we don't love you. We're going to do it because we do love you. And it is our way of rebuking you. And telling the stones of the altar, don't help that woman. Don't help that man. They have lessons they have to learn. They need to fast for a while. They need to go without. This is what's wrong with modern social welfare. Is they've removed the moral criteria to social welfare. You know, I've written some things, you know, we have uh, this stuff about uh, tithing. It says, he doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Now, that's in Deuteronomy ten eighteen. And if we, if we go uh, to this whole idea of widows and strangers, you know, we actually see quite a few places where widows and strangers are mentioned, and fatherless, are mentioned all in the same 
uh, verses. We see it in uh, Deuteronomy 14.29. But it also includes the Levites. And it says, And the Levite, because he hath no part nor inheritance with thee, and the stranger, and the fatherless, and the widow, which are within thy gates. Now, that's a, that's a statement right there. Within thy gates. Well, they didn't always have gates, you know, and fences around them, and all the, like the walled-in camp. Within the gates means something more. It means within that voluntary structure that you created through the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Which, in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, you pick men to judge certain matters. And you do it individually within those tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. But you also take care of the fatherless and the widows in the same tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. You all, that also is your military when you're attacked. They're your platoons and your uh, battalions. Because you know each other. You work with each other. You pull out your swords together. You are a brotherhood together. They all knew this. This is just common knowledge. It's not common knowledge today. Because you think government is electing somebody a thousand miles away to make laws. They're going to tell you whether you can keep your guns or keep your children or homeschool your children. In many parts of Europe, it's outlawed to homeschool your children. You'll go to jail and they'll take your kids away if you try. And there are plenty of people in America that want to make that law. And they can make that law. Because you gave them the power to make it a law that that uh, they have to provide welfare by taking from your neighbor. They are you have been electing benefactors who exercise authority, and now you think you're going to elect a new Saul who will not do that. The answer is to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Start becoming that voluntary network of people who care about one another, who actually come together in the name of Christ and worship God by caring and loving for one another. God doesn't is not so insecure that He needs you to praise Him so that He feels good again. He needs you to love one another like He loved you, like Christ loved you. By sacrificing for you. By taking care of you. Feeding you. Helping you. Healing you. It's not about memorizing some doctrine. It's about walking in a particular way. If we look in the Old Testament, the word widow in the Hebrew is almanah. Which is an elef, lamad, mem, nun, hey. That uh, Eleph, again, remember we talked about that in the beginning of this series? Eleph, Yad, Vav, Yad. The relationship of God and man. Okay, so it begins with the Eleph. The relationship of God and man. The second letter is Lamad. That means your hand. What you do with your hand. What you, you know, there's there's a guy who he was born without any hands. He does everything with his feet. His feet are his Lamad. That's what he does things with. It's your thing of action. It's how you put things into action. Lamad. Elif, the relationship of God and man in action. Mim, flow. There you go. Flow. But then it has a nun and a hay in it. 
And uh, even the word widowhood is Aleph, Lamed, Mem, Nun. Remember, most Hebrew words are uh, three-letter words. Widow is a five-letter word. Widowhood is a four-letter word. So, what, what is, what's going on here? What is the root word of widowhood? And, and what, what is it really all about, this, this idea of widowhood? Uh, and so, what is the root word? Uh, actually, there's another word, Elman, which is Elif Lamad Mem Nun. And it has another root word, which is Alam, which is Elif Lamad Mem. And uh, the, uh, the root word actually is said to mean dumb in the sense of mute, put to silence. Uh, it actually can mean defined as to bind, bind so that they have no voice. And uh, they're not heard from. And that somehow or other they're cut off. Like I said, widowhood is, uh, you know, this other word is forsaken. Alman is forsaken. And these are the root words of widowhood. It doesn't, you know, if you look at, at the word widow itself, uh, it actually doesn't necessarily mean a woman that doesn't have uh, a husband. You know, whose husband has died. I mean, that that would be a common interpretation of the word. But that isn't necessarily the the word widow itself. It it can mean someone who is, uh, you know, like I say, uh, just devastated. It's actually translated a number of different ways. Um, I was going to try to pull up here one way that it's translated... uh, is a desolate house. And you could have a desolate house. You know, a family could be desolated. And the husband's still alive. She's not really a widow. Maybe he's injured. Maybe he's imprisoned. Uh, all kinds of things. And how do you take care of that individual? It's, it, you know, that's what a widow is. So when we see, you see that word widow in the Bible, don't think just a woman whose husband has died. And certainly don't think a woman who's been divorced. Think of a household that's been desolated or decimated. Okay, we'll talk more about this when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back. Just a brief look at this word again that we see is the Elif, uh, 
uh, Lamad Mim Nun Hay that we see as widow. And it has all these extra letters in it. It comes from this original word that supposedly means to bind, but is translated dumb, as in, uh, you know, uh, can't speak, doesn't have a voice, voiceless. Bound so that they don't have a voice, maybe is what we would say isn't it, in that root word of Alam. Which is Elif Lamad Mem. And yet it's supposed to mean bind. Bind what? Flow, bind the flow of the hand, the relationship of God. Elif, the relationship of God and the hand of man in this mem is supposed to mean to bind. And and that particular word doesn't show up a great deal in, in the biblical text. I mean, it shows up about... Uh, uh, you know, I was trying to think of how many, maybe nine times total in the Bible. While widow shows up over 55 times. And then, of course, there's widowhood and, and other forms of, of these words. But uh, why the extra nun and hey? Well, nun is, you know, it's another word that has a, another letter that has a, a meaning. And it actually means heir to the throne. Well, the throne of God rests in the in each individual family. You know, people talk about having these rights and everything, inalienable rights, etc. Those are inherited from generation to generation. The kingdom of God is from generation to generation. Being an heir to the throne is from generation to generation. And going back to the beginning of this series where I was quoting from, you know, what is David to us? And they went back to their tents. They went back without being heirs to the throne. They had received this heirship as sons of God. And they had vested it in the office of king with David. He was now the state. They were not the state. They were members of the state. They had a king. They had a ruler. They had a president. And now all of a sudden they want to say, well, we're just going to go back to our inalienable rights. Well, you can go back to them, but you're no longer heirs to the throne. Because you just went back. And you said, well, I claim Jesus is my king. Well, then show me. Show me that you're walking in the ways of Jesus. Show me you're walking in the ways of the early church. Because Jesus didn't come to be free. He came to set others free. If you're just, you just want to know... People who ask me, how do I get out of the system? Wrong question. How do I seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? That's the question you need to ask. And that means you have to come together with others and fit together with others without interfering with their rights. That means you're going to, just practically speaking, that means you're going to have to know how to forgive. You're going to get practice in forgiving every day. Instead, I see people poking at each other, not forgiving. Forgiveness is the end of conflict. People say, well, you're just trying to create disturbance and conflict and everything. No, forgiveness is the end of conflict. If you're walking in forgiveness, where's the conflict coming from? Because they did something wrong? No. Let's go back to that letter Nun. Heir to the throne. You want to be heir to the throne? You have to repent and go back to the ways of Christ. And then you become a part of a system that has no king but Christ. You don't get to be part of that system because you read the Bible a lot. 
This nun is in, in Aramaic stands for a fish. But it's not just any fish. It's a fish that's swimming in the mim. In the flow. Swimming in the flow. This is what I talk about walking in forgiveness. You have to immerse, be immersed in forgiveness and giving and charity. I mean, what did, of all the things that, uh, John the Baptist must have talked about, the only thing we see recorded is he's saying, if your neighbor has, is missing a coat or food or whatever, a house, share. Now share wisely, share that in a way that strengthens, but share. This was his message of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness involved charity, sacrifice, free will offerings. And not just when you stumble upon somebody who's in need. The idea that all the elders of your congregation are going to get together every day and organize and figure out what the needy of your society needs is ridiculous. It's not going to happen. For one thing, they don't have the time. Uh, even if they could make the time, it would take a huge amount of time for them to come together every day and make sure that all the widows and orphans in their congregation alone were taken care of. But Jesus didn't preach congregationalism. He preached kingdom. How do you make sure all the widows and orphans in the kingdom are taken care of? You need to network. You need to set up ministers who will devote a great deal of time to this effort. They can't do it without your help, without your tithe, without your generosity. And if they're only going to be donated to by men who raise sheep, well, then you're, you're lost. You're not, it's not going to happen. They're not going to... Be, I mean, that, that, and I'm making reference to the silliness of thin-minded people who think that the tithing only included the produce of the ground like sheep and seeds and stuff. You're the ground. You're the dirt. It's what you produce. It's a metaphor. Get over it. So the nun is this fish swimming in the mem. But there is no mem for most of you. There's no flow coming from you from the tens or from anybody. Oh, token mem. But a fish would die in such token charity. So anyway, the Hebrew nun has another aspect to its meaning. The nun may mean the kingdom. Because in the kingdom there's a flow. A flow of love. A flow of charity. From you to you to you to you. And from God to you. Because you're walking in the ways of Christ who came to give. To sacrifice. But you're not coming together to give or sacrifice. You're coming together to know. To be known as a knowledgeable person of the kingdom. Boulder Dash. You're not knowledgeable of the kingdom unless you're knowledgeable of his spirit. And you're not knowledgeable of his spirit if you're not giving. And sacrificing. Like Christ sacrificed. Christ didn't die a token death. He didn't give up himself in a token way. He was rich and he gave up his wealth. The fish doesn't swim in your pond because your pond does not flow with the charity of Christ. So anyway, this is what happens to a widow. 
This is what a widow really is. This isn't necessarily somebody who's lost their husband. Their house has been devastated. The nun and the hay. Hay is an emphasis word. The nun, the mim. It's cut off. Husband may have died, gotten sick, been injured, whatever. Maybe it's a husband whose wife has died and he's got small children and he has to go out in the field and take care of the small children, what have you. These are examples, but there's lots of things that devastate a family. Maybe the husband's a total idiot. Maybe the wife picked him as a total idiot because he was easily manipulated and she could control him. I know a woman who was married to a uh, a guy and the the family was it was a travesty it was just terrible this guy was a total bum and he used her she's a beautiful woman and he just used her and used her and abused her cheated on her I won't even go into all the stuff that went on it was ridiculous the next guy she married was kind of a loser you know not very good looking, uh, not very uh, sharp, not very aggressive, you know, in the world of business and and uh, very timid. And she could add anybody. She chose him. Why? Because he was safe. He wasn't going to cheat on her. He wasn't going to betray her. He didn't have any other options. She, But he was safe. And they stayed together. Raised their children. It, it wasn't necessarily a match made in heaven, but maybe she needed that, you know. And and he got better and she got better. Still got lots to learn. But the point is, is that you make choices. And you don't always make them because the Holy Spirit is leading you. But no matter how bad a choice you make in your life, the Holy Spirit can turn it to good. But the Holy Spirit is that tree of life. And you have to eat from it. And it will give you tasks before you. And the, probably the most primary task is to see yourself as you really are. And then you will start to see and be able to pick up the Bible and start saying, Oh my gosh, that's what it means. And so we're going to give you you know, food for thought, fuel for thought uh, to kindle in your oil lamps but if you really want to fill your oil lamps so that you won't be just a foolish virgin running out of oil when it's needed you need to sacrifice you need to give of yourself and not like the pharisee like somehow you're a big teacher or uh, you're going to go and uh, uh expound upon the Word of God so that everybody will see how smart you are and how clever you are and how wise you are and how humble you are. People are so pride, proud of their humility. It's ridiculous sometimes. But it's it's a job that you need to attend to of waiting on others in, in a humble way. You know, and... You know, I put up this page. It's not really finished. I've worked on it for hours and hours, uh, looking at all kinds of things. And it's on widows. And, of course, it's under widow, just the word widow, which we know now is not just people, women who have lost their husbands. But it's it's households who have lost part of that structure, that family structure, that their life has become difficult because of that. 
but these widows are lumped together in Deuteronomy 14:29, 14:27 and 28, uh Deuteronomy 16:11 and 16:14. They're lumped together with the Levites and the strangers and the fatherless. And of course fatherless is again that devastated house. And you can be fatherless for a lot of reasons. I mean, most of you people are fatherless when it comes to uh, God. He's not your father. Your father's in Washington, D.C. or Toronto or wherever you're at, in Sydney, Australia, wherever the seats of government are. That's who you look to for your welfare. You don't don't pray the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, when thy will be done. Uh, Give us this day our daily bread. You know, you get your daily bread from somewhere else. You know, like... uh, like a fellow I just wrote before the program in Australia. He doesn't get his daily bread through God. Uh, he certainly isn't providing daily bread like the early church. He's all caught up in his own views of religion and he worships those views of religion. That's his, that's his idol. Uh, and that's not what it's all about. That's not the way of Christ. Christ appointed 12 men. And he appointed others, 70, and eventually 120 in the upper room. And they went out and baptized people who left the social welfare systems of Rome and Judea and Corinth. And provided for one another through a social welfare system based entirely upon faith, hope, and charity. And what Paul calls the perfect law of liberty. In order to do that, they had to, in order for Paul to know where to take the provisions with Barnabas. They had to have a viable network of people where they knew where to go. And who to take it to. And a system of identification. This is Timothy. You know, letters of introduction, ID. We have all that. But we have that for people who are actually seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That network, that voluntary network, just like all the other governments, that takes care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. The idea, you know, we we have a whole page on deacons and where the word deacon even comes from. And they, the people at that time knew that deacons come from the word dechen, which has to do with ten. They they had been doing this in Rome. They had been doing it in Israel. They had been doing it in uh, Germanica. They had been doing it in all these places for centuries. We are the ones who are ignorant today. And and that's why we see Justin the Martyr writing in 150 AD uh, to clear up misconceptions and prejudices against the Christianity. He wrote the Emperor Antonius Pius in defense of the Christian faith and allegiance to Christ, who is that other king. And uh, and he talks ab- about how, and those who have amongst us help the needy, and we always keep together, keep together in this network, not just in this little local congregation, but in a network, and for all things wherewith we are supplied, we bless the maker of all through His Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Ghost. Now, He's telling them how they do this. He says, Therefore, elect for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy 
of the Lord. Men who are meek and not lovers of money, true and approved, for they also perform for you the ministry of the prophets and the teachers. Now he's telling us this in 150 AD, close to the time of Christ. New people who knew Christ. He's telling you to elect these people and organize yourselves with these people. And and he's explaining how it works. And he even talks about the deacons taking what is gathered up by the president of that gathering and taking it out into the streets to deliver it to places where it is needed. And these are the deacons that they elected, ministers they elect. I mean, even the, the we don't see the word, you know, and we have whole studies on on this word deacon, which is minister, serving. The Levites were to serve the tents of the congregation. That's the people, the tabernacle of the congregation. To serve them. How do they serve them? Does all the food, all the money, all the resources to take care of the fatherless and the widows and the strangers simply go through them? No. It doesn't have to go through them. They don't have to go to every house. If you live right next door and you're covering this widow or covering this family that's having difficulties, he's just to make sure that it gets done. He's overseeing that it gets done. And then we have this other thing called a bishop, which is also translated overseer. He's making sure that from congregation to congregation, when there are needs greater than a congregation can handle, that the funds and and food and coats and tents moves over to this other group. That's his job. This is what electing, that's why you have overseers. They're overseeing not one congregation of families, like a deacon, a minister of ten, he's overseeing fifty or a hundred, making sure that the deacons get the supplies to where they're needed. It's a government. It's a voluntary government where all the taxes we call tithes because they're free will offerings. Tithes are taxes. You are taxed in the kingdom of God. But you're taxed by your own conscience. Because the state remains in your possession. Now that's not going to happen because you file some papers or make some belligerent claim in you know, rebutting the presumption. You have to rebut it with your actions. You know, I mean, the Amish don't do hardly anything but take care of one another. And they're automatically exempt from Obamacare. They just just made them exempt. They're already doing it. They're just exempt. If you were actually Christians doing what the early church did, you'd all be exempt from that as well, as well as a lot of other things you'd be exempt from. But you're not Christians. You're not following Christ. Oh, you read the Bible. Maybe even study Messianic Judaism. But you don't understand what you're reading. You you would if you did, the world wouldn't be in the mess that it's in. Now some of you may have some understanding waking up now. But you have a long ways to go. And uh not much time to get there. The modern Christian is deluded. 
And many of the people who think they are Messianic Jews or that they're reading the Bible and interpreting it, they are not interpreting it correctly because they're not doing what the early church did, which was electing ministers, servants, whether you call them deacons or ministers or whatever you want to call them. Even the word priest. We have a page on priest. What does priest mean? What 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 is a priest? What What's their job? How, how do they function? Uh, you know, when we the priests you see today, the ministers you see today, are not doing what the first century church was doing. And although we don't use the word priest too much, but I mean we do see it in the the New Testament, Melchizedek. Abraham tied to Melchizedek. What is Melchizedek? The righteous king. Melchizedek, king of Salem. The righteous king of peace. Melchizedek. My king is righteous. That's what it means. My king is the righteous king of peace. Melchizedek, king of Salem. And he was tithing to him. Why was he a king of peace? Because... He didn't force the offerings. He was the highest servant of servants of servants. And Abraham, when he was tithed to, he tithed his share to Melchizedek. And when they had to fight this enemy that came upon them, and the enemy is going to become upon you guys. You know, I saw last night a video. This is a little off the subject, but we're almost out of time. Uh, somebody sent a video, uh, posted it of... Uh, what do they call it? You know, we've seen where, you know, all of a sudden a bunch of musicians show up and they play some sort of concert in the middle of, uh, uh, you know, uh, like Times Square or something. And they, they bomb them uh, with this music. Well, there was a bomb in, a, I guess, a Walmart or whatever it was uh, somewhere uh, back east. And people just... They all got together and knew to get together and they all went in there and they just started grabbing big screen TVs and what have you and running out the front door. And there wasn't enough security to stop them. They were just, they were just grabbing them off the shelf and running out through the checkout stand and running out the front door and they, you couldn't stop them. They were just going as fast as they could. I mean, dozens and dozens of these things just going out. There was no riot or anything. They just, they just all got together and they just were enough thieves that they just went in and stole all these TVs. And it was mostly TVs, it seemed like. They were, you know, those big screen TVs. They were all just stealing them and taking them out. Some of the people were having masks. It was all pre, pre-planned. That's the spirit that's grown in this country. It's just unbelievable. You know, the, you know out here, people leave the keys in the car. Nobody's going to steal your car. It's a different spirit out here. And that's still around in the country. But there's a huge spirit of just the world owes me a living, owes me a TV, owes me food stamps, owes me EBT cards. Attitude that's grown up in this country. And you've cultivated it. Because you've looked to men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. You call yourself Christians but you send your kids to public school. You send your parents to Social Security. You don't take care of your parents. You expect the government to take care of your parents. To provide for your parents. 
If your parents are over 65, you should be providing for them. Actually, according to the Bible, if they're over 55, uh, a Levite was not to do any more manual labor after the time he was 55. He was supposed to be able to just preach the kingdom. Well, that's not the case here. <laughs> uh, we do lots of manual labor because you have no water in your pond. You're not following Christ. And until you do, peace on your house. And may God be with you and have mercy on your soul. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.